0: Hello and welcome to the Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and today I'm on my own. My colleague Paul Rickard is swanning around Europe, the lucky so and so. But hey, I'd rather be here with you guys. On my show today, I'll be talking to Matt Barry. Matt is the founder and the CEO of a company called Freelancer.com. And they also have another business called Escrow.com, which actually competes with PayPal for big ticket items and escrow has a number of advantages um, which other uh, rival payment um, systems don't have. Matt also is a a big believer that house prices will uh, fall and will all be brought to book and he's occasionally criticised me on Twitter but I gave it back to him as well. But we're good old buddies, we can take it it, and uh, I'm sure I will tease him and he'll probably tease me back but also Matt is one of the the smartest IT entrepreneurs in the country, so there's a lot to learn from that. We've got uh, Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Shane's gonna talk to us about what he thinks is gonna happen to interest rates, but I'm also gonna ask him is he scared about this story that ETFs, exchange traded funds, could really make a stock market collapse even worse. This was a story put out there by Mark Bury, the guy who was behind, well, was the star of that movie, The Big Short. He was a guy who thought there was a lot wrong with the things called collateral debt obligations, and he sort of started shorting a lot of financial institutions that were long CDOs, and in many ways, he sort of preempted and helped trigger the global financial crisis. And finally, my next guest will be um, Saul Share, Saul, share. That's a hard thing to say. I better practice it. Saul, share. He's a co-owner of Char Grill Charlie's. This is a very successful small business operation with numbers of outlets. I think in Sydney, but he could be elsewhere as well. Very successful, cashed in on the population of Australia who nowadays go go out for dinner, a lot of takeaway stuff. Be interesting to see how he actually created this business. Uh, definitely an Australian business success story. That's the show. Uh, without any further ado, let's go to Matt Barry, founder and CEO of Freelancer.com. All right, Matt uh, Matt Barry, thanks for joining us on the Switzer Show. Thanks for having me. Now, look, Matt, my, my usual uh, interest in the great Matt Barry is because of your freelancer.com business. Um, but I've got to kick off by saying, why, why are you so interested in house prices and the collapse of capitalism as we know it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it, it it's not much the collapse
2: of capitalism. It's just that um, the Australian economy has, some structural flaws to it. Um, it at the moment, um, we have an insane housing bubble. It's been going on for 58 years, and <laughs> led to an appreciation house prices of 6,500%, and, you know, it's resulted in, you know, the five major Australian housing markets being severely unaffordable, and I mean, I mean severely. You know, the dem- dem- demographic rates, um, housing affordability, uh, if you've got um, the house price uh, to income ratio of greater than 5.0 or more, uh, that's rated as severely unaffordable. And in Sydney, uh, up until recently, it was 13. Um, so it was, it was the third most expensive housing market in the world. You know, it's resulted in um, uh, Ballarat being less affordable than New York, Boston or Singapore. And, you know, uh, areas like the Sunshine Coast being the 10th ten, largest, sorry, the 10th least affordable housing market in the world. Um, and so this is going to end in tears. And I, I think the bubble's starting to deflate already. And so, you know, I have an interest obviously in Australia doing well. And I think we've got a chance narrative in terms of what we do in this country to be less reliant on just digging holes in the ground and uh, shipping dirt overseas and uh, building houses.
0: But, but before we go, go into the the main reason why I want to talk to you, because I, I am intrigued. I am intrigued because, you know, you're the CEO of a publicly listed company and, and I, I, there's two sides of my question. On one level, you'd think you, you just want the CEO to do everything to make his company or her company succeed, right? So that's one little box. The other box, you know, you're humanitarian and you're in Australia and you and you obviously care about the issues. Do you think that in, say, if, 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 if you've got a solution to the housing um, problem in Australia – that It's going to have a direct impact on the share price of freelancer.com? I think it's uh, completely
2: unrelated. Okay, um, I right. think that, you know, I have an opinion that, that about something that's completely separate
0: from running the company. Okay, fine. All right. I just wanted to, in, in case I was missing something, let's say anything. All right. So can I, I just ask you this then? Because I'm always curious about what the solution is. You know, I recognize that the housing, you know, debt to GDP ratio is biggest or second biggest in the world and all those sorts of things, but Matt, what can we do to change that other than my solution would be, let's just make more, make more houses. Let's, let's increase the supply and, and bring the price down by actually providing accommodation for people so it's, not, it's such a serious issue that prices need to be so high. What else is the solution? Well-
2: well, we're already doing that. In fact, there's, uh, according to the latest like the Leather Bucknell Crane Index, there's 735 operating cranes in Australia, uh, about 72% are building residential apartment blocks. And that compares to the entire of the uh, 14 top US major housing markets where there's a total of um, a bit under 200. So, I mean, New York, there's only about 20 cranes operating currently and you've got more cranes operating in Canberra than in New York. So, we're, we're building houses like crazy um, and house prices are going up not because of wages, because wages are it's, it's They're going up because we've got fairly high levels of immigration in this country. And that's how the government's chosen to prop up the economy um, as a bridge from the resources boom to, to, to somewhere else, is by basically uh, bringing a lot of people into the country to basically prop up the housing market and also prop
0: up tax receipts. So, so you, you see immigration, uh, accept, accepting immigrants as being... Um, in a sense, like a conspiracy by governments, as opposed to, well, we're a wealthy country. Why don't we share the wealth and make it easier for people living in, in, you know, uh, lesser countries? You, you don't see well. That well so-
2: no. I, I think I think immigration has a has a part to play when it's skilled immigration in key areas where you need to kind of um, build skills and human yeah. capital to to grow the economy. But um, we are off the the kind of the, the deep end in terms of um, the rate at which we we are. Um, um, I mean, immigration now is actually the third biggest export industry. It's education dressed up as immigration. Mm. Um, 62% of population growth in this country is due to immigration, not from natural um, births. Uh, and the fertility rate in Australia is actually um, fairly low. It's below the US, UK, Canada, and Australia, and so forth, Canada, and New Zealand, and so forth. Mm. So, um, you know, it does have a role to play. But I think, you know, if you, if you actually look at the areas in which um, we kind of um, bring people in and so forth, um, and kind of what's happening uh, in terms of um, education, even though education is booming, we're actually producing, um, you know, we're actually uh, focusing in the wrong areas. You know, if you look at computer science, for example, and, 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 and engineering, um, you know, the number of um, uh, graduates from uh, computer science has dropped by 35% in the last decade. And in, in, in areas like electrical engineering, it's, it's, it's worse. So I just think that... It's, you know, it, it's all a balance and I think that um, we've probably gone way too far uh, in terms of uh, numbers in and also in the wrong areas mm-hmm. um, so we need to get you know, more skilled people so I mean ultimately house prices have to come down or wages have to go up right and um, wages are not going up um, wages will go up if we get people more skilled we get them more educated in the, in the right areas uh, and, and, and the fact of the matter is that house prices just have to come down due to just the math uh, it's just people can't afford you know the average person can't afford the average house now it takes you Nineteen years without eating uh, for the average person to power the average house in Sydney. So, um, and it's after tax. So, okay,
0: you know, I, I, but, yeah. I think we're going to have to debate debate this or talk about this when we've got more time because there's so many issues there. Yeah. The, no. the, yeah the, the the one thing I will say to you is that um, you know I've you know debated you know very sensible economists like uh, Steve Keane for many years, a colleague of mine at UNSW. And, and the one thing that you know um, you've got to remember is that economies can actually you know can can really uh, make it difficult for those who predict doom because it's sometimes you know macroeconomic policy can actually delay the arrival of the day of reckoning and and that, and that, so the yeah. I finish I let you re- reply to it the problem for someone like me is that I can't afford to tip a stock market crash in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and be wrong, and so, so in a sense, the doomsday merchant has the problem that, doesn't have the problem of being accountable for making predictions about when it's wise to be in and out of assets, and that's one of the big problems of you know expecting economies to be to behave rationally given you know your sensible analysis.
2: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, in 2007, um, uh, um, Australian households were more more indebted um, to housing than the Americans were at the peak of the GFC. Mm. And then government, government policy came in and uh, you know did things for the first time and so forth, and mm. and we blew an even bigger bubble. So you're absolutely right. These things can be pushed off by governments for, for an, an ex- extraordinary of time, but I think that time might be running out. So I'm just being pragmatic based upon... The, the numbers
0: okay. Well, if, and at the
2: end of the day households have got so much money to spend and um,
0: you know they've really at the limit in terms of what they can afford the have. okay well when, when you are proved right and we're going down the gurgler I will yell out but Barry was right okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> alright let's get to let's get to the let's Thanks, get man. to the, 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 the let's get really get get, get to the more no more but the other important matter of making money um freelancer.com how's it going as a business matt
2: um so you know, half year results um we do about 400 million now every six months with bank accounts um there's a couple of businesses um uh, that we have now under the under the um uh, the parent company uh, one is freelance.com which is a global global marketplace for jobs uh so we have 38 million people now in that marketplace and just any idea you can possibly think of you can now get someone on the internet to go and um uh, uh, helps you turn an idea into reality, whether it's designed for your website or um, design a mobile phone app, or whatever it may be. Uh, and you know, we've done 16 million jobs to date um, through through, the, through that business. So um, you know, any job you can possibly think of, you know, right down to financial analysis, you could probably get someone to review the housing market. You could get someone to do copywriting for you, uh, manufacturing, uh, you name it. Uh, we also have another business called Escrow.com. Uh, this is a payment business. This was started in 1999 by Fidelity. Mm. Uh, SoftBank put $40 bucks into it. It's a payments business, so it's like PayPal. Yeah. But the difference between PayPal and escrow, it's the buying things that are expensive and complicated. So things like boats, cars, airplanes, jewelry, gemstones, diamonds, bringing in shipping containers from overseas. Um, there's even um, tickets uh, for sale for a space station they want to put up. Um, uh, called Orion's ben, and it's $10 million a seat, and right now we're taking deposits and we're taking deposits through escrow.com, so it, it's
0: a big-ticket item. Yeah. Matt, explain how a normal person wanting to buy a big-ticket item would use escrow.com.
2: Well, it's, it, it's if anything, buying selling anything of value and uh, where you've got a, a risky proposition because you don't know the other person you're buying uh, from. So, for example, you might go to Craigslist and buy a mobile phone. And, uh, rather than, um, paying with, you know, PayPal or doing a, doing a direct bank deposit and then potentially having something go wrong. Instead, the way it works is you set up the transaction on escrow.com, um, you lock in the price, uh, and then what happens is we say, send the money to us, and then we put the money in trust, uh, while the transaction goes through. So. Uh, the phone gets sent to you. You can, you can inspect it for a number of days and return it if there's any issues. Uh, otherwise, the transaction goes through. Okay. So it's, it's it's very useful for buying things from overseas or buying things from interstate. Like if you maybe buying a car or you're selling a a wedding dress, for example, and uh, you're dealing with another party. And you, as a buyer, you want to make sure you get the right goods, and as a seller, you want to make
0: sure you get paid. Mm. So so w- w- for example, PayPal, have there been mm-hmm. problems in you know, f- for, for big ticket items?
2: Yes. So PayPal has buyer protection, uh, mm. but the way buyer protection works is a bit more like an insurance policy. So it's after the fact when something has gone wrong. So you've got to fill in a like an insurance claim form. Um, not every item is covered. There are limits of uh, you know as to, as to what's covered and what's not. You have to make sure you, you, you originally describe the item in a certain way, and it doesn't apply for a very very large amounts. Mm. Um, with, with with escrow, we protect things preemptively because simply we're a trusted third party holding the money until the transaction goes through. So you can ship the goods, you can receive them, you can look at them, inspect them, and then you can decide, okay, I'm willing to pay for them now and we release the funds. So So it's a a much better
0: um, scenario. I would have thought that groups like antique dealers, art dealers, motor motor car dealers would like this, wouldn't they, when they're, they're selling stuff in a state or overseas?
2: Absolutely. And, and we're actually integrated inside a whole bunch of different marketplaces around the world. We're inside um, Shopify Exchange, for example. We're inside aircraft marketplaces. We're inside car marketplaces. In fact, this week, uh, we just went live with a major North American car marketplace where all the private um, uh, transactions now you have the option of paying through escrow.com. And so, you know, you, you name it, if it's, if it's an item of value, um, it's something that potentially
0: you use escrow.com to buy and so on over the internet. But, Thank you. And so, is this a listed company, Matt?
2: It's part of the Freelancer Group, which is listed.
0: So, so it's so any any success that Escrow has will go to the bottom line of Freelancer. Correct. Okay, that's good. Um, all right. Now, uh, how good has the marketing program been for Escrow? Because I think you might mentioned this on my TV show some time ago when you first. Um, secured it. Is that right?
2: Uh, yes, that's right.
0: Okay. So, so you're you're a very critical man. Like you've even had the the intelligent audacity to even criticise me at times. So, <laughs> so my question is, is escrow um, successfully marketed to the people who who really could get a lot of value out of it?
2: Yeah, I think so, and it, it certainly certainly adoption and, and uh, integrations are, are growing quite strongly. Um, it's most of the business about eighty something percent of the business is in the United States, so that's mm-hmm. where we focus our marketing, yeah. and it's it's mainly within certain industries. So it's with you know with an automotive, uh, it's it's an art, it's within um, you know a whole range of different um, uh, industries where uh, escrow is perfect for, yeah. for securing a transaction. Um, and you'll be certainly hearing a lot about it um, in the next uh, next coming weeks because we've got a whole bunch of things going alive as we speak.
0: Okay, right. And, and how can people trust your trust? It's
2: been running for 20 years. And it's also, um, in the US, because it's state-by-state licensing, um, you actually need to have, um, it's actually 50 states, four don't require licensing in the six territories. So you actually need 52 uh, financial services licenses to operate across the full federal footprint in the US, and we currently have 48. So... Um, it's, it's licensed, it's regulated, it's bonded. Um, each of those state regulators, and we also have an AFSL in Australia, for example, mm-hmm. um, they audit us on average every two years. And so uh, we basically get audited constantly by state regulators. And um, being being in, in escrow in the United States mm-hmm. or in trust in Australia, that's a legal contract, um, which is which which is you know, highly regulated. So it's better as strong protection as you can get. And so it's even safer than... Even save them putting the money into a normal deposit account because it, it's
0: in trust. Okay, now I'm freelancer itself. Where do you make most of your money, here or abroad?
2: Overseas, uh, Australia for the group is only about six percent of our business.
0: So what what, what it, percentage? Mainly, what percentage of the business?
2: About six percent. Yeah, yeah. So it's mainly it's mainly. I mean, we're, France is a global business. We okay. actually operate everywhere there's electricity and there's internet. Um, so about half half the business comes from, from the United States.
0: Yeah, yeah cause it seems to me that you, you really haven't marketed hard locally, you know, because i thought a lot of small businesses should be using your, your service, but I, I'm not quite sure if small businesses in Australia are aware of the potential. So uh, we, have, we, have, we have between half a million
2: and a million businesses in Australia.
0: Using using the business,
2: yeah, using the business. Yeah, okay. I can't get the exact number, but it's somewhere around there. So yeah, you know, yeah, certainly we certainly can continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's thirty eight million people, and there's there's probably now four billion or so of people on the internet. So it's still pretty pretty early days in terms of in terms of adoption
0: globally. Okay, and so w- what's going to be the what do you think is going to be the big plus for freelancer.com in the year ahead?
2: Well, the big thing we're having right now is we started an enterprise division. So we're working with Fortune 500-level companies, the likes of um, uh, Airbus, um, uh, Nordisk, um, government organizations like NASA, U.S. Department of Energy, and so forth. Uh, and, um, you know, large enterprises now, they've seen the reports from McKinsey that say but by 2030, 50% of the U.S. workforce could be freelance. They've seen what Uber has done in the transportation industry with 2 million freelance drivers. And they're looking to basically uh, uh, capitalize um, on using cloud labor um, to basically uh, get a strategic advantage in their industry. So we've we've got some huge things that are happening right now um, uh, with enterprise and uh, very, very excited about that.
0: Okay. Well, one last thing I want to say to you before you go is I often talk about economics when I'm trying to explain it to people who don't really understand it. I say a lot of economics is like what I call Suzanne economics. You know, this goes with this, goes with this goes with this. And you're old enough to remember those ads on TV, Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To, it seems to me that the, the best way for your housing uh, doomsday scenario to happen would be if there was a serious Trump trade war because that would probably lead to a recession and that would be a real day of reckoning. But a recession would not be good for freelancer.com. So I uh, rec- That's
2: actually opposite. That's, yeah. actually, that's actually the opposite. Uh, so, recessions yeah. are actually very, very good for freelancers. In fact, the global financial crisis set the whole industry alight because you have a lot of people looking for work. You have a lot of small businesses looking to hire in alternative ways rather than hiring full time. Yeah. And you also have a lot of people who spare, spare time on their hands, you know, in between jobs, yeah. uh, working on their side projects. So, a recessionary environment is actually.
0: Quite good for because it's, uh, ah, it's So them. that's why you're encouraging uh, a recession man <laughs> You are such <laughs> a craft and I've caught you out publicly on my program. Matt, Matt Barry, thanks for joining us on the show thanks, Tata. Now I want to do a, a quick ad for the Switzer Income Conference which has the unfortunate acronym of SICK but as my producer told me young people think SICK is a good thing and things are good that's say ah oh, SICK anyway the Switzer Investment in Income Conference comes up in November, specialising in you know, a time when term deposits are hopelessly low. We're going to look at alternative ways to try and get your yield, your dividends up. And uh, we've got a group of companies that actually specialise in delivering good income to investors. The uh, conference will be held in Sydney on November 11. Melbourne November 19, and Brisbane, November 20. Now, if you want to get along to this, go to www.switzerevents.com.au. I hope I see you there. When it comes to economic matters, and even though I kind of rate myself as an economist, I always like to get some vindication from some other people who are as smart or even smarter than me. And one guy I love to do that with is Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. I want to ask Shane about what he thinks is going on with house prices. You know, will the tax cuts eventually work? Will rate cuts actually be a help? And will we see another one next week? That's when the Reserve Bank makes its uh, next decision on interest rates. And I also want to ask him about exchange-traded funds. Could they be a serious problem for the stock market? So, without any further ado, which I always say, Shane Oliver, AMP Capital, welcome to the program. My pleasure, Peter. All right, so I guess the most important question most people want to get get a handle on is, do you think our economy is actually improving?
3: That's a good question. Uh, There is some evidence that the low point and growth was actually the second half of last year. In fact, if you look at the GDP numbers, that's when we're seeing those really low numbers, whereas the first half of this year has seen quarterly growth of around 0.5% in each quarter, which is around 2%. So you can make an argument that through the latter half of last year we were growing about 1% and now we've stepped up a notch to uh, to around 2%. That said, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty Going forward about the growth outlook because the housing downturn or construction downturn is still feeding through, and we're still waiting to see whether the tax cuts and the rate cuts have had much impact on consumer spending, where the jury still, still seems to be out at present. So I'm hopeful that we've seen the low point, and that's my, uh, that's my forecast that mm. we're still waiting for clearer evidence that that's actually happened.
0: Do you believe that the worst of the house price dropping is over?
3: Uh, I believe that, uh, the evidence would suggest that as well. Uh, it depends on where you are in Australia, but if you take the average, which I guess is what feeds through to the average of consumer spending and the average of how banks feel and the average of how the economy grows, then that would suggest the, uh, the steep falls of late last year, early this year have given to modest gains or gains of around 8.8, percent 8. across the national capital city. Now of course Sydney and Melbourne have been leading that. That's where the the big falls were. That's where the sharp sell off was in the latter part of last year. But those two cities now seem to be growing at around somewhere between one and a half and two percent on a monthly basis, and that's consistent with a big pick up in their auction clearance rate. Now of course if you're in Perth, you'd say, well, it's still falling here. Uh, if you're in Darwin and other and other cities, you know there's still uh, weakness continuing. But if you look at the national average, it looks as if significant price falls have given way to um, price gains in recent times. Now, the question is whether that's going to be sustained or not. If you look at the auction clearance rates, I don't think uh, we're going to sort of continue around the 75% level indefinitely. I think it will slow back a notch as sales pick up through the spring selling season. But, uh, and, and I also think that the future growth in house prices will be constrained compared to what we saw say, around 2012 out to about 2017. Uh, I, I don't think, in other words, we're off from another boom in housing. But, but there are some things that will constrain things. Obviously, uh, you know the, the economy is a bit slower than it was back then. Um, interest rates have been cut. Household debt levels are much higher than they were back then. We've also got some more unit supply to come onto the market, particularly in Sydney. So they're going to constrain things. But it does look as if, to me, that the election and the move to rate cuts Particularly from around May onwards, uh, is what sort of sort of ended the the slump in Sydney and Melbourne, and that's that, you now driving modest gain.
0: Is it too early to expect uh, the tax cuts a to be spent and b providing injections of growth into the economy?
3: It's uh, I think well the problem in Australia is that uh, the data that's been released for retail sales so far relates July. We'll get the August retail sales figures in a week or so's time. I think it's next week. So that'll give a pretty good hu- good handle. I think July was probably a bit too early because that was when the tax cut started to be paid. But by the time people would have got their tax return and actually got the tax cut back into their account, it would have been late in July. Um, so you, you would start to see some impact, I think, from August onward. We did have this debate uh, in relation to the uh, Kevin Rudd stimulus payments at the time of the GFC in late 2008 and early 2009, a lot of debate about whether it would be spent or not. In the end, about 50 of it or so was spent. Some of it goes down to paying off debt and so on, which is fair enough. Mm. But uh, about half of it was spent. But it did, from memory, it did take a little bit longer to show up in the economic data than mm. uh, might have been hoped initially. So mm. there is a little bit of a lag here because people tend to spend it on big ticket items, and they're the sort of things they think a bit more about. They don't sort of rush off to restaurants and things, or spend it in Woolworths that mm. they don't, they get it. They tend to spend it on the bigger ticket ticket items, and that takes a bit more thought.
0: And you so, being and you being a family man, you probably understand that if someone gets a thousand dollar tax refund, they're going to probably think, well, this is pay for the holidays or pay for Christmas gifts. And, and that's probably when the money will probably be released.
3: That's right. It can take a while to come through. There, there, there's a bit of economic theory around this. People might regard it as a, as a windfall, or one-off. Therefore, they'll, they'll save it. Um, that said, uh, these uh, these tax cuts or tax refunds will occur for each of the next two years and then they'll ultimately be replaced by tax cuts. So they do have a degree of permanency about them, which suggests a greater chance that they will be spent. Whereas at the time of the Rudd, uh, stimulus um, payments, they are actually temporary. They were just one-offs, um, and yet some of them were spent. But there was a lag involved in spending that money. The Australians are relatively cautious with their their spending. They don't go off and, 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 and spend it all. So I'm not particularly surprised that it's taking a while to come through. Uh, so that's why I'm not particularly alarmed at this point. But I am hopeful. <laughs> yeah, we do need to see this showing up in some of the economic data in the next the next few months.
0: Mm. Okay, um, Shane, uh, next Tuesday, uh, will the Reserve Bank cut interest rates again?
3: Uh, we think they will. It's uh, all about uh, a bit like in the US, taking out some insurance to uh, help help support growth. Uh, we have seen the Reserve Bank express um, its desire to see lower unemployment, whereas in the recent job figures, it was a slight rise of unemployment. And the underemployment rate also rose. So that would, I think, concern the Reserve Bank. And therefore, we think they will cut rates on Tuesday. That was our view prior to the uh, jobs figures coming out. Um, So we didn't change them on the back of the jobs numbers. The jobs numbers discovered a bit more confidence that they will move. Interestingly, I guess you could look for all sorts of conspiracy theories around this. After the two rate cuts in June and July, RBA Governor Lowe was, was scheduled to speak to a a business group dinner that night, and which he explained the decision. After the last two meetings where he did nothing, there was no scheduled meeting or, or presentation to occur, whereas next Tuesday there is. So um, maybe it's been scheduled to mm-hmm. uh, um, allow him to explain the decision. Uh, a lot of issues will float around about this, uh, this This rate cut. You know, is the Reserve Bank um, shooting off its ammo before it really needs to? I think central banks actually have to operate in anticipation. Of uncertainty if they wait for things to get worse, then you know, they've got to do more. So it does make sense to to move in advance of any more significant deterioration. Okay. Secondly, will it help the economy? I, I think it will. The evidence suggests that the amount of public, the amount of household debt in Australia is more than double the amount of bank deposits. So yes, there is a loss. We've talked about this one before. There's a loss to people like my mother who get some money from bank deposits. Um, but there's also the amount of money going to those with uh, mortgages is actually double that that loss. So that will help, I think, uh, in the community. The other thing is that a, a rate cut might help keep the Aussie dollar lower than what otherwise has been the case. That means a greater chance that when Australians go on holidays, they won't go to LA, they'll go to somewhere in Australia, which uh, helps the Australian economy. So mm. I, I think, yeah, they probably will cut rates. But is it a sign that the economy is heading to recession? I don't think it is. I think sign that the central bank is, is um, doing all it can to, to head off that, which I think will be successful ultimately.
0: Okay, one final one, mate. There's been stories around that a, a real problem for stock markets may will be the growth of exchange-traded funds. You would have seen that the, the guy who tipped that um, CDOs would lead to um, um, a big stock market sell-off. Michael Bury, I think his pronunciation is, he's t- tipping that. What's your view on ETFs? Are they a, a, a tripwire for the stock market?
3: I, I don't think they are. In fact, you can argue that an ETF, you know, the bulk of the ETFs are invested in indexes on the market. So it's where people are saying, well, I don't have a strong view as to which stock or uh, to buy. Um, therefore, I'll just buy the whole index and the easy way to do that these days is an ETF because it's traded on the share market. So the bulk of those ETFs are effectively exchange-traded index funds. Um, and indexing, I think, is actually a low-risk way. It's not people taking a lot of risk, and not putting their money into tech stocks or resources stocks or what have you. They're, they're investing more broadly in the market. So to me, the whole ETF phenomenon really just reflects a desire for lower fees or... Flexibility and a broad exposure to the market. So, to me, that's not uh, excessive risk-taking. Unlike CDOs, uh, which were complicated, highly geared versions of property loans, ultimately uh, that no one really understood. I mean, there is. A, I, I guess some people would say, "Well, everyone put their money into EDF. Uh, if something turns down in the market, all that money could, could could leave quickly." But that would apply to any money put into the share market. When I look at global share markets, it's not as if they're trading on exorbitant valuation. You know, the Ford PE on our market is around 16 times. Long-term average is about 14 and a half. So it's a little bit, a bit above its average, but for a world of low inflation, uh, you could argue that a 16 times Ford PE is not that exorbitant. In fact, you can make an argument it could be even higher than that. So i I'm, I'm there, there are, Reasons for concern that if there's more liquidity, then money could come out of the market quicker. But on balance, I'm not uh, that fast by it. Mm.
0: Uh, it seems to me it increases volatility, but doesn't necessarily mean that people will want to get out of, the, out of the market any faster than they would if they're holding a bank share or or, or whatever.
3: Well, that's right. If you still think about it. Uh, Share market investing enables people to get out of them, out of their investments quickly. Obviously, if they're invested in the property market or, or unlisted assets or infrastructure or something, it takes a lot longer. But any way of investing in the share market does entail the risk that that money could come out uh, if things go wrong. Uh, ETFs, I don't think, change that. Uh, in fact, I think ETFs, in a bigger sense, are quite healthy because they enable people to get a, a low-cost exposure to the market if they want to. I I really don't see that we should be overly concerned about it. I think we should worry about things like excessive gearing or gearing or over speculation in in individual sectors. We shouldn't really be worried about things that make it easier for people to invest and transact.
0: Shane Oliver, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. That was Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. And as I'm compelled to do an ad of some kind, why not push my book, Join the Rich Club? It's available at switzerstores.com.au. The price is $24.95. And let me tell you, it will change you as an investor and it will make you rich or richer. If it doesn't, come back in about 20 years' time and I'll give you money back. My next guest is Saul Sher, who is a co owner of a very successful Australian small business, which is expanding such a stage as we probably should call a medium sized business. The business is called Char Grill Charlie's. Saul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I've got to say, every time I see Saul, I can't help but think, better get Saul, that TV program. Did did you become more popular as a consequence of that TV program, Saul?
1: I've learned to pronounce my name more correctly. (laughs)
0: That's a good point. Now, listen, mate, tell us uh, how big the chargrill charlie um, business is nowadays.
1: Well, in all the years, started in 89 and all the years down, I think it's 30 years now, we have 13 stores and one being built.
0: And you've you've been through um, a number of different... um, styles of business like you you have tried franchising um, and it wasn't I guess it wasn't a great experience because you got out of it but you've you're kind of rethinking the the experience
1: yes exactly we we thought the franchise business was quite an easy model mm. and we did try franchising many years ago mm. and with not that much experience um, due to I'd say Lack of training on our behalf to train the franchisees correctly, Mm. um, we—I don't think we. I wouldn't say we failed, but we didn't want to carry on with it. Yeah, we preferred running the stores on our own.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people have found that is that you have a great business, and unless you do have the system so perfect, and you you select the right people, it can become a troublesome experience that actually diverts you from the, the core business.
1: Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly what it was. Uh, We have a very, very complicated system. Mm. So going forward, we decided not to go down the franchise route, but go more down the partnership group. Mm. So it's a franchise partnership model, which um, years later um, we have opened, which in this way lets us train people adequately we can open up stores with fully trained staff. Mm. Staff that have trained for many years. Mm. Both owners and partners in the stores um, have had lots of training, which has made it successful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Saul, because yeah, you, know, you are in a sense a successful family business, right? Yep. Yeah, and I guess in many ways you've learnt how to create partnership businesses because your family members have been partners right
1: that's exactly correct
0: but we also know how hard families can be as well so and on top of that you're South African and all my South African buddies are not the easiest people to push around so put families together with the South African inclination to be pretty tough you must have learned a lot about managing people
1: yes exactly that and We're quite unique in the way that we're actually a family business, but it's two generations and not only brothers, fathers and brothers, Mm. but it's uncles, fathers, brothers and cousins. And it works pretty well. So we're a very unique business. I think that's where our success is, Mm. is the family business and us guys working together so well.
0: Did you find that you needed someone within the group to effectively be the leader that kept you all together? Because clearly, you know, there's a lot of testosterone in that organization as well. Uh, did you find that someone did actually rise to the occasion to be the, the person to, to get you all the bond together?
1: Well, not really. Um, the two olders, my uncle who founded the business, yes, he sits at the top. Um, and then later on, As um, the three younger partners got older, Mm. we tend to have different roles in the business. We don't really put it all onto one person. We don't have one that we actually listen to all the time. Maybe we should actually have that person to run a business more successfully. But at the moment it's going very well the way we do it.
0: Have you, um, because a lot of businesses, family businesses in particular, they say to me, well, what we found was a beneficial thing was to bring an independent set of eyes in to sometimes uh, help sort out family issues. Well, have you got? Have you? finally
1: you say that right at the moment, and we um, have had meetings about that, and we we have had an external person working with us, mm. which um, um, proved to be very good. He's no longer with us, and in the future, we will definitely bring someone like that into our business. Okay. I, I,
0: I'm, I'm kind of biased because I've always used your product, you know, because it's, it's nearby where, where I've lived, um, and the, the bias is that it always seemed to work well, um, and maybe in the early days when I think about it, it was the power of the personality who was actually always in the store that that made the thing work really well. But over time, I feel as though you guys have really systemized your business much more than the the original days. Is that something that you would put down to explain the success and the growth of the organization?
1: Um, Yes, definitely the systems and the training of the staff. Um, As the stores get older, Um, So we can step out of the stores to go run other stores. Um, Mm. We never, ever leave one store alone at all. A family member's always in a store at some time during the day. We're always inside, outside Mm. the stores, um, in and out of the stores. And um, what we've done is we've tried to create our staff to be like us. Mm. So we have in our stores, um, even though some of them are partners, some of them are not partners, they've been working for us for a long, long time. So it's as if we are still in the stores, even though we're not there mm. um, at all times.
0: H- have you have you felt as though you've ridden the wave of demographic change in Australia that people are now going out or ordering in, going ordering out, uh, uh, coming out for takeaway or ordering in? It seems to me that there's been uh, since first day I ever came across Chargville Charlie's to today, that growth and that desire, that demand for that sort of product has really been a a big thing for an organisation like yours.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, With that, I think it's all got to do with the product that we sell as well. Mm. Um, We change our products all the time. We keep everybody interested um, the food is um, always changing, um, nice, fresh, good food. So the people are just coming back all the time. Mm. Um, I think in in Australia, Sydney, at the moment where we are at, there are, th- um, I'd say, a lot of people um, maybe have slowed down fine dining mm. and have tended to go towards um, takeaway, but mm. they want good quality. Yeah. And that's where they stick with us.
0: But also, the the trend over the last 10 years, you've got – double working families as well, which means that under pressure, they're more likely to come to a place like yours to to get evening meals where once upon a time one person might be at home actually cooking. That seems to be a demographic trend that's favoured your business as well. Yes,
1: definitely that is. And then again, Mm -hmm. our products being home replacement meals, Mm -hmm. healthy food, um, suits those type of families. It's not just um, greasy takeaway food. So Mm -hmm. I think they don't feel guilty by eating our food. Yep. It is a um, healthy alternative.
0: And I, and I would say that this might be a hard question, but Saul, I want you to answer it brilliantly if you can. Uh, if you look at one particular store over a 10-year period, I would have thought the t- turnover, even, even the Wallara store in Sydney, which I know, the turnover would have actually increased more than inflation by, by a long chalk. Is that your... your um, Recognition of the of the growth of turnover?
1: Oh, I don't know what the exact inflation rate is mm. at the moment, but our stores have increased. Mm. Um, all our stores um, in a 10-year period have all gone up, mm. some higher than others, some quicker than others. But, yes, we have increased mm. um, turnover in the last 10 well, years. Well, I can tell
0: because the wait is longer <laughs> because there's too many bloody people in the store. But, anyway, so... What do you think's been the cuz people listening to this may well be thinking about going into their own business and you know p- particularly in the uh, the food space. What do you think have been the big lessons that you've learned that's changed you as a business leader?
1: That have changed me is I would say I've learned a lot about business, how important it is to Well, I'm in the the business um, serving customers, so the most important person is our customer Mm -hmm. and how important it is to keep that customer happy and in my industry is giving them good food and good service. Mm -hmm. So We try our best to do that. As you said, the Walara store is packed and it's um, a small little store and you wait a long time. We try and minimise that. We try and give you good service. We try and give you the best food and we just try and keep our customers and keep them coming back mm.
0: but what about the management of people because you also have a lot of people there as well have you learned more, more about managing people as a consequence of being in a business like this
1: every day that's another um, thing that we do as one of my cousin's partners says is we're not in the business of cooking chickens we're in the business of managing staff And that's exactly what we do. We manage our staff very well. We keep our staff. We've got some staff that have worked for us for over 25 years. Mm. And by managing our staff, keeping them happy, it's um, a key to our business, keeping the staff happy. They make good food. They Mm. sell um, with a smiley face to Mm. a customer, keeping the customer happy, come back.
0: Okay, you're in Sydney only
1: We have opened one store in Melbourne Mm. um, about four months ago. Whereabouts? In Camberwell, and that's a franchise store. And um, the owner of that store is actually um, a cousin of one of our other franchises in Sydney. Mm. So we don't um, sell franchises to anybody. Um, He came um, from this one guy who has a store in Sydney, Mm. And it's been um, really good in Melbourne. Um, the brand hasn't kicked off like it would have in Sydney, but we're working really hard on it. And it will definitely be very successful in a great area and a fantastic store. Well,
0: there's two things. One is, because we, we have a place in Melbourne as well, and it doesn't seem to be as many chicken sh- shops in Melbourne
1: like there is in Sydney.
0: Is that something you've, you've actually recognised?
1: Yes, we have. There isn't any. And also people in Melbourne, what's, what's been a challenge for us, they like to eat in. Mm. Um, the takeaway side of our business is the side that we need to grow. Mm. Where in Sydney, the people take away, not eat in. Mm. So in Melbourne, they want to sit down. There's, there's quite a few chairs and tables in the shop in Melbourne and mm. it's a beautiful store. Mm. They want to sit down and eat their food. Mm. Where um, in Sydney, it's um, mostly it in and out.
0: Well, you're also going to please my daughter-in-law because she's a Camberwell girl who now lives in Paran. But whenever she comes to Sydney, she goes to your place to have your special chips. So for her to know that you're in Camberwell now will make René Carl, Switzer, very, very happy. Fantastic. All right, mate. So um, the future. Do you see this, obviously, the Melbourne expansion is going to be something you'll um, be um, pioneering?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um when we would like to increase in Melbourne, mm. I think there's a great opportunity in Melbourne, um, fantastic city. Um, we just need to teach the people to take away food, not just eating. <laughs> I'm sure we'll succeed in that. Sydney, um, this year we've got one more opening up in Diwa, yep. Um which um, down on the beaches, um, basically between our Mossman and our Mona vale store, which there was quite a big gap. And then um, none left in the pipeline at the moment, and I'm sure next year we will um, look for a couple of new sites to mm. open up.
0: Mm. W- will you look at people who come to you and actually say, I'd like to open up a Chargill Charlie's outlet?
1: We have people coming to us every single day, and we find it very difficult to um, decide from that which is the right person. We do have interviews, but generally speaking, as I said, we don't really open up stores for, let's call them strangers. Mm. Um, We have a a line of people in our stores that have been working for us for many, many years that generally um, are the next in line for a store um, as a franchise or a partner.
0: All right, Saul. Well, it's great to talk to you. You've, you've, you and your family have grown a great business, and uh, let's hope um, the success
1: continues. Thank you very much.
0: And that was Saul Schur, who is the uh, co-owner of a business called Char Grill Challenge. That's your show for today. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to check out switzer.com.au and also our YouTube channel for our TV programs. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.